Welcome to Full and Frank, a series of podcasts from Acris Exchange, spanning the worlds of finance, politics, sport, and the media. Welcome to this Full and Frank podcast on behalf of Acris Exchange. And I'm Michael Wilson, and joined by David Buick. Good morning. Good morning to you, kind sir. And we are very pleased to uh, say that we're joined by Patrick Johnson, who is, uh, at the moment, he's managing partner of Beaumont Nathan. But we're going to talk about a long journey and maybe a journey. So let's get just the, the, the basics of it. How did you start? What did you actually want to do when you were at school in short trousers and all that kind of stuff? To be frank, I had no real idea what I wanted to do when I was at school. Um, I think I remember saying to my father um, that I wanted to be a policeman and then I think I wanted to be in the army. Certainly nothing to do with horse racing. But uh, so my formative years, I wouldn't say were overly successful. And so, so what was it about the turf that attracted you? I was trained, believe it or not, to be a jockey um, in Barbados. Um, my father was a racehorse trainer um, in, um, in Lambourne. You may remember a, a jockey by the name of Scobie Breezley. Very well, yeah. So he took me under his ring when I was 16. I think I weighed seven and a half stone, used to run in a, um, in a sweatsuit um, and ride out at the Garrison Savannah in Barbados. Yes. The winner, of course, of a Gold Cup later on, trained by Jenny Pittman, if my memory serves me right as well. You, you may well be right. <laughs> <laughs> so so what, what, what changed? What, what was the thing that took you to the city and all the rest? Well, it, actually, my formative years, um, having, having been thrown out at school, um, uh, I, I went to Heatherdown Prep School. Then on, but long story short, I was given a fairly serious talking to by my father, who said, you can either join the army, go to the clergy or go to Africa. Um, and I was very fortunate my family used to have some farms in Africa, so I was dispatched mm. with. And to be fair, went for three months, came back six years later, and from in every measure way since um, it was it was the making of me. I, I well, the education so was amazing. The education, the experience, the work ethic, you know, living in that part of the world and seeing a complete different culture, but really, you know, talking about people that one admires. My uncle, who'd lived through, you know, the 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 the, the war of independence or terrorist war, depending on which mm-hmm. side of the camp you're on, um, in in the late seventies, um, a staunch you know supporter of all things Britain, found himself you know on the um, uh, Zambezi River facing British forces, whilst he himself was in a British uniform <laughs> with a threat of invasion from you know from his from his homeland. This has got shades of Zulu all over again. Well, yeah, Michael King, really absolutely. gracious me. So I have, a, and he built a, an amazing farming um, empire out there, which sadly was 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 all, all taken by by the troubles. So, so you got experience of management, man management, and all those kind of things. Bit bit of politics built into that. So, what was so, so you, you came back. What was what was the inspiration behind that? What did you feel you were going to do? Well, I came back not knowing what I wanted to do. I I, I was farming in Africa. And I was very happy farming in Africa, but I set up a business while there of commodities trading, where I basically bought um, uh, commodities on behalf of NGOs out in Zimbabwe because they were hard to get. And um, uh, Red Barna was my first, um, which is sort of Norwegian Christian uh, aid agency, and I bought two hundred tons of Natal light speckled sugar beans. Um, turned about 15 uh, cents a kilo profit so I thought hang on this is this this is going to be fun so I jacked in the farming set myself up in this business did that for about a year sold it then moved down to South Africa um, set up another business this time in the mobile phone industry um, and then I got slightly distracted um, uh, through a variety of different sort of issues and eventually that business went bust Um, so I flew back to England in 19 when was it 
1995, uh, very much my tail between my legs with no qualifications, um, and I'd only ever worked for myself. So I looked to the back of the Evening Standard and got a job selling uh, selling business ratios, which are basically single page spreadsheets from Company's House to company directors in, in, a, in a company that was then called ICC, which was bought by Hoppenstein Bonnier. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was that was how we fell into financial services, if you can call that financial services. Well, it's it's backdoor entrance, but it didn't do you any harm, I think. So you ended up, I mean, via various places, working, I think, with Michael Spencer at ICAB. Is that yes. right? Yes, yeah. I, I mean, there was a sort of, a, a sort of in- interesting journey to get to Michael. Having run sort of uh, Standard and Poor's uh, basically electronic research, yeah. I went to Thompson Financial, which was then um, not part of Reuters then. Was it, it wasn't part of Reuters yeah, then, yeah. and sold uh, uh, their their research product and their electronic trading platform, which then took me to a, a very innovative company, which uh, was in a Chicago-based company um, run by a guy called Gerald Putnam called Archipelago. And Archipelago was um, the, one of the first ECNs in, in, in the US. So order handling rule change in, I want to say, 97 in, in the US. Gave rise to two-way bids uh, where you didn't have to be within a certain threshold on spread. And they basically took over from, from the traditional exchanges. That why we ended up running the European office of that. And of course, Michael was very much attracted to technology, which he'd done through the bond market, really, to start himself off. But am I right in saying that he never really got hold of the equity market to the degree that he did in everything else in the money broken. Is that fair or is that, I mean, he did in the end, because obviously with his relationship with CME, mm. which bought next for five and a half yeah. billion dollars, he got he got there in the end. But it was not one of the great success stories in his portfolio. Or is that slightly unkind? I, I think I think Michael has, has always been and was always slightly um uh, reticent in terms of equities. If, if you remember, he was even before we started uh, the equities business at ICAP. He was um, chairman of, of Numis yeah. uh, in, in its early formation um, from from when it turned from Raffles along Helmsley. Um, so I think he's always he been and slightly, been very good friends. Absolutely, yeah, and yeah. they remain friends. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, um, I, I don't think he was he was never a buyer of the asset class and thought it was a too crowded space. What he did want is innovation, and and when I Pat Turnbull, who was then yeah. running, um, uh, came from Butler's, didn't he? I think. Well, he was Butler's originally. He was he was um, he was treasurer of the Halifax Building Society. Yes, of course. Adam, he was, yeah. And he he started life um, having left school, and they said, "What do you want to do?" And he, he said, "I want to be an accountant." Well, they they said, "Would you like to be an accountant?" He said he thought it was a turf accountant. He thought he'd be on the road. <laughs> um, anyway, so. He ended up running. I took over from him. And in those days, ICAP Equities was a very small business. But with the, with the first slew of regulatory changes that was hitting the market yeah. and Michael's uh, desire to build a uh, to build more businesses organically rather than acquire them, we were in the right place at the right time. So Mifid One was just hitting, um, mm-hmm. hitting, hitting the sort of European scene. And there was a tremendous op- opportunity to be a genuinely unconflicted um, agency broker, uh, providing high quality research, but really execution for both yeah. only and, and hedge funds. So we started that business with that premise, built it up with a very strong electronic component. We took the uh, program trading business out of, out of UBS. We bought a, um, an amazing uh, license for um, what, what, what was one of the competitors to LiquidNet, which as you know, TPI Cap have just bought LiquidNet for 700 million. Um, we set all these the, these businesses up under a single remit of setting up a genuine um, 
equities service-led agency broking business uh, competing ultimately with, um, with, with, and this is where the problem came, with ICAP's core clients, of course, because who services the fund management community? Well, it's, it's the sell side major banks. We were competing directly with the sell side major, major yeah, banks. When you're supposed to be wholesale, really. Yeah. You add on, and so this is why it's slightly unfair to call. Um, you know, M Michael was, you know, um, treasurer of the Conservative Party at the time. Um, Mark Yallop was 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 really running the show. Um, and at the same time, they acquired a business called Link Asset and Securities, which was Charlie Davis's equity derivative business. They paid two hundred million for that, all in thereabouts, with an earn out. We were always compared with that, but their acquisition cost was capitalized against the balance sheet. Our acquisition cost was run through the PL. Obviously, we were hiring through so the financial crisis. Yeah. Well, the financial crisis allowed us in 2008 to hire people we never would have been able to get hold of. So we got, as I said, the program trading people out of, out of UBS. We got sort of the head of cash equities out of City to come and join me and the former head of sales trading at Merrill to set this business up. So it's myself, a guy called Daryl Bowden, and a guy called Glenn Poulter. And that gave rise to a, a business that in 18 months grew to you know, 120 people in eight different yeah. countries. So it's really like what, what to, where I'm wrong is the, sl the start was slow, but it gathered momentum as a result of the financial crisis Correct. and having the commitment to the cause. Well, you had, you had three main mainstays, regulatory change, technology innovation in the back, very yeah. caps amazing platform, and uh, an opportunity created by the financial crisis, all of which we took full advantage of. Hmm. Let's just move on, because when I got to know you, you arrived at, at Pamela Gordon, um, and the place, I think, was fair enough to say, was not enjoying a particularly good time. I mean, Philip Weldon, we both <laughs> like, well, we did, you know, and it wasn't great. And I, I may be speaking out of turn, but I don't care if I am, because uh, I have a huge uh, empathy with Pamela and a lot of the people that were there. I don't think our major shareholders were overly helpful, but is that is that unfair? I think I think I don't I don't think I think circumstances conspired against Philip Well and the Qataris and equal yeah. measures. Tim Lineker, who was the who was the CEO before Philip, um, had presided over a diminishing platform and a diminishing client base, and hadn't really and and the chance he took was actually to acquire a business in. In the, in the in the on the west coast yeah. in San Francisco, completely in timeline, out of out of the comfort zone. With no synergy, I think. Absolutely no synergy, and pay top dollar for it. So that was a business called Think Equity, and that went under relatively quickly, which dragged down mm -hmm. the business into a state that was quite difficult. So when when the board uh, removed Tim Lineker, Phil Well was given basically quite a difficult brief, and if you wrap into that a shareholder that was found it difficult to communicate. Uh, run by people who didn't make the decision to do the investment in Pamia, which in itself was a mash of yeah, Gerlach, yeah. Pamia, and Lazard's a securities business. Well, and West Deutscher and God knows what well, else. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. West yeah. The, 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 it then created this, this sort of inertia that was quite difficult to push forward. Um, and I think Philip found dealing with, quite rightly, dealing with the Qataris difficult. My approach was very much one of the, tackle the problem head on rather than skirt it. When they approached me to take over from him, I was head of equities at the time, and then Philip asked me to run corporate finance. And when the Qataris asked me to, um, to take over as CEO, originally I said I didn't want to do it. Um, uh, and they said, well, if you don't do it, we're going to get somebody else uh, and you might not like that. So I suggest you just buckle on and do it. So I did with one condition. And, and this, is, this is paramount, in my opinion, to successful service led agency businesses, whether it's in the art world or whether it's in legal profession or whether it's in, uh, uh, in, 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 in banking is partnership. 
people being so you manage your cost base correctly and if you have a good year you get performance to the upside but if you have bad years you can weather the storm and protect your, your balance sheet your PL. pretty logical ways you know this is not, not reinventing the wheel here so that was a condition that if i came on as ceo they would allow me a path to take the business private and return it to at least 20 percent of the equity in the hands of staff yeah. We we talked to Bob Diamond, didn't we? What what difference did he make to the company? Huge, well, let me just do an intro and right. make it <laughs> yeah. less difficult for Patrick. I mean, I'm going to sing his praise. It's not because he's here, but because he did a fantastic job in the time at Pamela and things were being turned around. Patrick will correct me in the figures, but if I think I'm saying is that the dear fellow here insisted that we took a big hit, kitchen sink with all the nonsense was there. And I think something like $21 million loss was posted and it pulled a branch. And that was an amazing achievement. Well, not great, any great money being made, but if you knew how bad things were and how well he'd done and he had the full support of the staff, there was a lot of people had to go because they were set in their ways over the last 20 years. Certainly he made me jump up and down and I respected that, it was great. But unfortunately, Enter stage left, and I'll bring you in here now. Atlas decides they would like to buy Panmure, and Bob had a meeting with Patrick, and I'll leave it to you. Well, David, I think you're being, you're being very kind. Um, but I, I, I was there, mate. I know you were, I know. <laughs> but the, the reality is that it was not a happy ship, and it needed um, some fairly clear decision-making. I mean, not least of all, cost base was out of control. Uh, revenue diversification, and now the guys of Mifid 2, which is the, the next you know, uh, opportunity as I saw cost it, as well. but, yeah. but cost as, as, as was, was very apparent. Um, but ultimately it came down to um, morale and legacy. You know, you have one of the best brands in the city um, being dragged through the mud on a continuous basis. That said, I, it wasn't that difficult, um, no disrespect to my predecessors, to turn it round if you took the bull by the horns. And, you know, we made some very serious decisions very quickly. One, reduce the cost base. We had a lot of dead wood. And, and, and that was that was a drag because, again, people were secure with large salaries, yep. not necessarily productive. So get rid of the dead wood. Um, so that was well, that's in the sort of amend the mistakes of the past and cauterize the wound. Yeah. Second thing was was to deal with, with with the balance sheet, which was carrying an enormous amount of goodwill um, and write it down and just get rid of it once and for all. So it was a kitchen sink. And the third thing was to put in a motivation and, 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 and clear leadership both sides of the Chinese wall that benefited what we were good at. Yeah. So focus, sectorization and, and clean, clear management was a relatively easy win. So you're kind, David, in what you say, but the reality was anybody would have looked at this and said, this is the opportunity. Which means somebody had to do it. Correct. Yeah. That when when um, myself and the, the then chairman went out to, uh, to Doha to plead our case, their very quick thing is you turn this around and start making a profit. We'll let you take it. Um, uh, private within the first year we turned we turned a reasonable profit um short two million quid um and um which was reversing a massive loss in the mm -hmm. previous year and they said fine take private we we then discussed a variety of different partners um most of which were pretty unsuitable for their perspective we got two very well-known uh, uk um, funds who were, were willing to invest at, at the price point but they weren't acceptable partners for the qataris and then the qatar we pushed it back to qatari to say well show us who you'd like to do a deal with and to stage left um, Atlas Merchant Capital. And so I met with, 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 with them um, and we had very, a very decent, strong conversation. Their, 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 their ethos, their background, what they wanted to do was very clear. Um, 
what they decided to do in the end, um, their prerogative was to sort of tweak things um, at the back end of this whole process, um, including replace me and put in um, their, their, uh, man. their man, which, you know, I don't, so I don't, I don't, I don't, I had been no ill will to anybody. I mean, you know, Bob Diamond did what he thought was right. Um, I, what I don't think he understood um, is having never worked in the small mid cap space is the huge difference that, I mean, there's a, the chasm is very wide from, you know, massive investment bank with huge balance sheet to small service-led um, uh, investment bank that is totally predicated around mm. service, capital raising, high quality research and trading. Well, I'd like to bring Michael in on this. I think, if you don't mind, we'll, we'll cast a veil over that. Um, <laughs> not because, I, you know, we, you've got so many interesting things we want to ask you about. You had a very short stay at N1 Plus Singer, yeah. a change of mind from the CEO, which I thought was outrageous. Don't You don't have to say anything because I was so important. And so there he was, Patrick Johnson, pulled back from the breach. And what am I going to do with my life? And can you pick it up from there? Michael, did you, did, Michael, did, you, did you used yeah. to have an old car which you had to double the clutch to change gear? You know, that's, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> but, but, but from, no, from what you've I mean, you, you, you brought, you could have more or less done anything because you, 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 You've talked about the values of partnership. You've talked about the values of relationship. You talk about understanding the space that you're in. So it's actually quite an achievement, isn't it? In any in any kind of profession. So, what what brought about the change? Because it's quite a considerable one in relation to the art world. You had to learn. I'm not being rude, but I, I, anybody would have had to learn an enormous amount. In a very short space of time. You have business. That's the thing. Yeah. Well, I think I think that, that David that Michael, Michael, both good questions. They're both both very relevant. Um, that joining uh, and seeing this opportunity, which was created by um, um, Wendy Bowman and Hugo Nathan, uh, was a very fortuitous, um, unplanned event. Um, there's a there's a, a, a founder of this business in terms of, 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 of he helped finance its startup, um, ex Goldman Sachs partner and, and good friend and mentor to me, um, Hugo van Denmark, who is. Uh, um, who, who was previously CEO of uh, TMF Group after he left Goldman Sachs, um, was incredibly helpful in, in a variety of different mm -hmm. of, my, of my banking roles. And he sat me down uh, uh, in Portman Square um, at, 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 at um, I forget the name of the club. And he said, you write down on a piece of paper, what is the most important thing for you? And I will help you in what you want to do. Fully expecting to go, you know, some private equity led, very much in financial services. You've had, if my memory serves me right, one or two sorties with other banks, and they didn't float your boat. Is that right? Well, at the time I was, when I was going to join um, Singers, and I got on very well with, with Tim to start with, but that was just two minds that never met, yeah. and somebody who wasn't willing to give up the reins. But I was going to go and uh, be head of ECM at HSBC, mm. um, and so. But again, I didn't really want to go and work for the bank. It's not really in my in my DNA. So uh, various other sort of opportunities based loosely around financial services presented themselves, which I just I didn't really want to go into the broking side again. I want to do something different. Um, and so back to Hugo is writing down this list, and and he said, "There's a common theme with you. It's working with people you like and trust." Um, Anyway, so I didn't hear anything for a month or so, um, and he was just providing generic advice. And he then said, go and have breakfast with two friends of mine. I said, yeah, fine. What do they need? Oh, just a bit of business advice. I said, absolutely no problem. I said, out of interest, what, what business there? He said, the art world. And I said, my wife calls me an art heathen. I know nothing about art. He said, don't worry about it. Just go and meet them. 
and I met two very accomplished people who set up a fantastic business, both steeped in the art world, both from the auction side and, and, and the sort of gallery dealer side, um, who'd set up an amazing business. It was a relatively easy due diligence process to look at the opportunity. And there were so many similarities between willing, willing buyer, willing seller, high quality service, assisting people by providing market-led knowledge-based advice, which is what I basically focused on my entire career. Yeah. The difference was it's to do the with product. art. Yeah. What had my eyes on stalks when I when I agreed to join um, and, and very much very, very kindly taken on as the third partner um, was I thought banking was a shady business with a a, a very tight group of connectivity. The art world, um, for all of its um, beauty and, and glitz, is, and glitz <laughs> is um, not for the faint of heart. Um, and it, it, it's, it, it's still surprising to this day is that, you know, um, uh, industry titans will acquire works of art, you know, in, in the sort of tens, often uh, uh, hundreds of millions of, of dollars um, without requisite advice. You wouldn't acquire a company for two million pounds without a lawyer, an advisor, yeah, and a specialist, and everything else. So uh, they're, they're in, the opportunity was huge, the service was important, but what really attracted me was the honesty and the transparency of this business. That is how you, in, the, in, in, in my mind... And because of that, you win clients. Was that? that is the point. Yeah, and you don't just win clients on a short-term basis. You know, long-term greedy is, is an important process, but to get there, you've got to win trust. And the only win trust is the quality of service and the ability to perform a genuinely non-conflicted service with absolute transparency and moreover confidence in your own skill set and ability and the ability to listen and understand what they what your clients want that is at the dna heart of this business mm -hmm. behind where we're sitting now did the people listening to this podcast is an array of books on the art world so <laughs> I'm not going to be, well, I'm going to be slightly rude about you. I don't think you know an awful lot about the content of those books. But your two colleagues must be very serious players. They, they, they're, they're very serious players um, in, in, in their knowledge. And this is this is what they are the most genuine um, people I, I've, I've had the pleasure of working with. Um, they're genuine for themselves, but they are, the passion in the art is mm -hmm. evidence in everything and every client interaction and every work that we see. So it's actually a really easy, you know, I, I forget who said it, but you know, do if you can do your passion and to earn a crust, then you're onto a good wicket. Well, that's exactly what they've done. They've been in the art business and they met it at a gallery called Dickinson and, and decided that all the, all, they were poacher turned gamekeeper. They knew all the tricks of the trade, they didn't particularly like them and saw a massive opportunity mm -hmm. to be, the way I put it to financial services people is, if Goldman, if Goldman Sachs is Sotheby's and if Merrill Lynch is, is Christie's or Bank of America Merrill Lynch is Christie's, we're Rothschild sat on the side, providing that sort of very high end um, advice. And, and Hugo and Wente, their knowledge, their ability and that directness, opinion, taste led, connections and, um, and, and and utter transparency, all layered with passion, makes them, you know, the world's best art advisors in my book. Do you want to talk more about the 
connectivity between what you've been doing before and after. Shall, shall, we, shall we move? Because I was going to, just back to the city very, very slightly, if we mm. may, a lot of talk about where it's going and whether, you know, business is being stolen from it and all that got taken from it, you know, sure. Europe and the rest of it. Um, everything, again, you've talked about is about relationships and trust in people and so on. And the pandemic's got in the way of that because we, here we are all sitting together, which is really nice. You know, normally we'd be doing it, I say normally, what on earth is the normal? Doing it remotely, which is not as good and so on. Those kind of relationships, do you feel as though London is specifically good with those kind of things? Because there's no doubting its expertise, it's world beating, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I'm Brexit aside, um, in fact, Brexit included, I'm I'm a passionate believer in the city of London as and, and continuing with its capability for all the reasons you discussed, forgetting things like rule of law, commonality, and the service level that we do, the ability to provide financial services out of a central geographic hub that is steeped in tradition, honesty, integrity, to a point, um, is, 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 I think, here to stay. And I think that, that the fragmentation of Europe, irrespective of the veil of, of uniformity pulled by the EU, is still a veil. And underneath it, there are there are, there are pull and pull and strains between Amsterdam, between Paris, between mm-hmm. Frankfurt. Mm-hmm. London doesn't have that. London is simply, come and play in London, it's a you know, level playing field, it's competitive, and you've got to put your best foot forward. I don't think, I don't see that going away. But the biggest thing, and COVID included, have just re-emphasised that is London is a, is a, is a place for innovation, innovation and reinvention, and 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 when, particularly when it comes to financial services, I don't see that changing anytime soon. I'd like I'd like to just expand uh, what we were talking about before. But there's two or three things I'd like to ask you: is for a company like <clears throat> Beaumont Nathan, which is niche, powerful, influential, COVID must have played into your hands. It's funny, I think people... Because of your relationships with people, that people, you know, we're not going to galleries now, we're not yeah. going to auctions now. Christ, who's going to give some good advice on this stuff? I think I think, I think, it played into our hands to a point, um, you know, but you are looking about an industry which is incredibly, incredibly tactile in its nature. You have to, if you're buying a £10 million picture, you want to see this thing, you want to see how it moves you, how it, how it, how it, how it is important to your collection. You, it's very difficult to do that through digital rendering. Um, so what we adapted and turned the business team is obviously adapt our communication methodologies. We were out of the office for you know, four months of that first lockdown. Um, we have been back in the office as a team since May of last year. So, um, But the reality is, is we had to redouble our efforts. The coincidence-led opportunities of doing an art fair or, or an auction viewing or a gallery viewing, gone completely. So it very much focused us and, and our team on the discipline and importance of regular communication um, showing opportunities in the many ways possible. But ultimately, it's about providing a service to the point that you increase your trust capabilities because of a, of, of, of a, of a pandemic, because of the disaster um, that, 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 that made all physical meetings impossible. You increase the level of service. And that means you row twice as hard to stay still. And that's exactly what we did. So again, it was about innovation. It was about uh, customer focus. And, and it was about making sure that you invest in people and going back to Michael, your point around, you know, the city is ultimately in any service based business relationships are at the heart and the people that are, that are key to the relationship are, 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 it's two way. And if you invest in people in a business, you will get um, uh, return in spades by their relationship with clients. And I do. And I know that sounds trite and simple, but it is at the heart. I was skimming through your website, which I think is, very well presented mm. to people that are, you know, not au fait with the art world. I think it's terrific. One thing that I noticed was numerically, 
you were bigger than I thought. And you've got quite a lot of members of the fairer sex who are obviously very good at selling this and obviously they know about knowledge because the opportunity I mentioned at places like university where you read history of art, like my, sure. both my daughters did, you know, and absolutely being frog marched around a gallery by them is a joy to me because they just look at me and say, Dad, you're not, you're not listening, yeah. you're not focusing. Listen, go and sort that picture out. You know, is it, a, is it going to become increasingly a, a labour-intensive operation or not really? Have you just got the quality of staff that you, you want and I, they're doing the job for you? I mean, it's a great question. I mean, I think, I think you know, diversity and inclusion is something that, that the city is very focused on, uh, as is the rest of the, of the working world. We hire through talent. Um, it just so yeah. happens that, that we have a, a large proportion of ourselves that is female. Um, they are passionate, they are exceptional at providing um, uh, the service that, that, that we look to. And as you say, they're, they're great, they're great salespeople. Art sells itself though. I mean, it's all about the relationship between the client and, and, and what he's looking at. Our job is to make sure we've got a, an effective filter and and then it comes down to negotiation and that that's a skill set in itself so I, I see i see our business not dissimilar to financial services progressing the big opportunity that i see within this is is is, is growth and scale that's partly why i'm here we've just um, about to uh, announce our, our, our much delayed opening of our us office just signed our lease in, oh, in brilliant. i was going to ask you about that yeah we're about to uh, uh, announce sort of um, uh, two or three new hires in, in, in New York. Um, and again, which is really important to, to the growth. But the reality is, is the same things are gonna test this market as any other market, increased regulation, increased reliance on, on technology, and frankly, a, a desire, once the light is shone on a very opaque world um, through either technology or regulation, what happens? liquidity increases more people get involved and the advisory services that that people that the uninitiated need become more apparent so to me this business has all the hallmarks of something that is genuinely scalable scalable um uh, based on, on on pretty much similar principles to to investment banking i understand the london can <coughs> deal with europe generalizing for your business and now to the new york situation but you've got to look east haven't you so, or is that not a possibility? 100% correct, David. Um, so the, the, if you look in large handfuls, you've got, you know, 20% of the art market in the UK, um, a good 60% of it in the US, and then probably 20% out of Asia. That's sort of in a, in a sort of big handful. The growth, if you, if you look at the growth of the market on a global basis emanating from China in the last 10 years is, has been from 1% to, to where it is today. So you're absolutely right. The methodology, however, of distribution and the provision of advice is very different and needs to be tailored. Do, do, you, do you ever find yourself helping somebody whom you don't really like very much? And, and, and you feel as though, I know what, I know what you're buying. <laughs> no, 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 it's a really no, good question. Well, you know, it's a really, really good question. <laughs> To, no, I, I don't know that. I, I think it. I think it's a really good question. I think um, yes is is the short answer. Um, uh, the reality being is that this is a we have stock servicing clients who 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 it, it just doesn't work, and that's that's because they're not built for us or we're not built for them. Uh, moreover, it's it's um, they don't listen to advice, and we're very strong believers. If you don't need our services, then pay for them. Um, so I, I think there is a there is an onboarding process that is based on the relationship our clients now we've got a pretty good footprint of how to bring clients on our clients now is a very much tested from us to them and them to us and usually the passage to uh, to, to a solidified relationship 
is 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 blurred because of the service you're providing. So the onboarding process is critical, and that that can be anything from three months to three years. You've had huge experience over the last twenty years. I mean, I know your work experience is much longer than that. Just give us a flavour, if you don't mind, Patrick, of, of who you admire, both from the business world, the financial world, the art world. I mean, you must have met God knows how many thousands of people. Two or three people must stand out, I'm sure. Well, I, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Michael Spencer. Um, we have to, don't we? I mean, he is, you know, I, I, I've seen him call the market right on so many occasions. Um, uh, and 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 position him and his business through absolute understanding knowledge. I mean, he's fearfully bright. We all know that, but he's also incredibly good at seeing the future and self-evident in his exits from from what was ICAPS, but two ways. Um, I mean, just textbook. Um, but he saw timing is good as well, isn't it? Timing. He's he's an innovator, and he saw technology, and those were his two uh linchpins and he and he he understood markets and he understood people and he surrounded himself with people i think he promoted a lot through loyalty i think that's a really that's a really good thing sometimes i think it got in a way of loyalty in place of ability in certain circumstances but as a general rule michael is your standout um uh, i think there are lots of people that have that have influenced um you know me hugo who i mentioned mm. that bb who i mentioned earlier um I, I had a very soft spot for Pat Turnbull, um, uh, Jerry Putnam, who who set up uh, the Archipelago ECN and took advantage of the, of the rule change. And that business now, we, we IPO'd that business um, and then reversed it into the New York Stock Exchange. It is now the backbone of the New York Stock Exchange in terms of its technology yeah. platform. So, I, I mean, those were people I sent up. Having met the likes of, of, of Bob Diamond, um, I don't know him well enough, so I wouldn't say he's in the slightest bit of, of, of an influence on me. Um, um, but I, you know, I, I, one of one of the people I think I admire the most in this market um, was who I worked with at, at ICAP is a guy called Glenn Poulter, um, who who again foresaw the opportunity that, that we were doing. Um, he was ex head of equities at, at, at Citibank. Um, he's now running um, Northern Trust, um, just moved to Chicago. And I think, you know, I look at where he manages people, how he deals with relationships. And, uh, you know, he's, he's definitely a standout for me. And from the art world, obviously you haven't had as much exposure, but even people that you've met seeing at uh, art exhibitions sort of thing, is there anybody who thinks brings a nice wry smile to your face and think, I admire, gosh, I'd I, like to sit down and have dinner with him one night sort of thing. Well, I, again, it's difficult from afar. I mean, I'd like to go back and have a word with um, Leonardo da Vinci because that really would be an eye. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, but but I, I guess, you know, I've, I've learned a huge amount about art and, 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 and my own view on art. I, I wouldn't profess to understand it or the price is paid, but I definitely understand it. Um, uh, the importance of the passion behind it. In terms of people, um, my partners aside, um, I think well, there are. Without saying, yeah. I think there are probably two, uh, and both of them. Um, you know, I spent quite a lot of time and, and, and great, great pleasure dealing with with Christie's, um, which uh, I've got to know them reasonably well. Um, and Jerome Truty, who's the who's the CEO, is is, is a marvelous man. Um, and then I've learned to. I don't know Charlie Stewart particularly well, but he's like me, not from the industry. He's taken on Patrick Jaggi, who bought um, Sotheby's, as you know, um, and everybody looked at the sort of debt mountain that he, he, he I mean, he, it's a debt fueled acquisition. However, what what he's got in Charlie is a very good businessman who understands um, uh, how to construct a business for the future, because this is all about the future. 
the, the, then I see very much what happened to the exchanges of the past, uh, and, and I'm oversimplifying it, but the exchanges in the past, the methodology of how art is transacted will fundamentally be different in five years' time. So unless the Christie's of the world, I mean, look at ICE, didn't exist 10 years yeah. ago. Same principle with Christie's and Sotheby's need to innovate, need to evolve, and need to prepare for, in my view, price war on the one hand, um, i.e. downward pressure on commissions, an understanding of their cost structure and a slimming down of, of what they do um, in order to, to, to continue to innovate. And I do believe that in 10 years time, you, or less, you'll see structural innovators coming in and either acquiring or replacing those two stalwarts if they refuse to change. Thank mm. you so much. Thank you. Absolutely wonderful. Enjoyed it enormously. Mm -hmm.